Thank you so much for listening to this episode eight of the F-Rated podcast. I'm Holly Tarquini, the founder of the F-Rating, which is an intersectional feminist film rating applied to all films which are directed and or written by women. And I'm Manu Anand, journalist, podcaster and broadcaster. We hope you're enjoying our conversations with women in UK film and hopefully you've got a growing list of films made by women to add to your watch list. Um, now, Holly, in this episode, we got students to ask questions. So tell me a little bit about Screenology and Interfilm, the two institutions we tapped. Yeah, so Screenology is a film school in Bristol and they do a BA in filmmaking for students that really just want to make films. They're not particularly interested necessarily in the kind of philosophy of filmmaking, but getting their hands on a camera, writing scripts, editing and so on. And Interfilm is a really interesting organisation. It's in charge of film in education across primary and secondary schools. So that's the kind of younger end of our questioners. I wanted to make sure that that young voice was in our podcast, that we had people that want to get into the industry asking their questions because they're going to be quite different from our questions. Yeah. They are, and they're really useful. That's what I loved about them. Sometimes, you know, a child's or a younger person's view is absolutely so direct. Right, well, we've had a stellar lineup of guests already, from screenwriters to directors, music composers, editors. And today we're speaking to Philippa Lothorpe. Philippa is an award-winning TV and film director. She started in documentaries. She was lead director for the first series of Call the Midwife, and she directed the BBC miniseries Three Girls, based on the cases of young girls who were groomed for sex in Rochdale. She's also director of the feature films Swallows and Amazons and Misbehaviour. A big welcome to you, Philippa. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is lovely. (laughs) Now, we've been speaking to students who want to work in film and specifically screenology in Bristol and into film. And of course, young people always want to know the journey, you know, the person who's found their calling and made a success of it. So tell me, first of all, as a young person, what got you interested in films? Well, nobody in my family was in the film industry. My mum was a teacher and my dad worked in agriculture, so I had no experience of people who worked in this world at all. Um, But then I went off to university and I didn't think I could, somebody like me could do it, actually, is the real answer. So first of all, I tried to be a barrister, which was a terrible disaster, and I was absolutely hopeless at it. And by failing at that, it made me go back to looking at what I liked. And I got a job being a researcher in a documentaries department. So that's how I managed to find myself in the world of film and television. And uh, Philippa, when you worked at BBC Bristol, you very cunningly slid a note under the door of a man called Peter. Can you tell us (laughs) about that? BBC Bristol at that time was renowned for making amazing documentaries, and they still are. And alongside the Natural History Unit was this amazing documentary unit. And when I got there, I I discovered that I think I was probably one of the very first young women to be given something to direct. And the thing that I was given to direct was only 20 minutes long, so it wasn't like a big earth-shattering thing. And then me and my friend Julia Simmons, who then many years later went on to run Comic Relief, 
we were both quite junior, we looked at everything that the BBC had made in Bristol and found that no women had been directing anything. So we made a list of all the programmes that had been made and who had directed them and threw it. Yeah, we shoved it under Peter Salmon's door. Luckily for us, Peter was a very big champion of women and wanted to change that culture in BBC Bristol. What gave you the confidence to say, actually, can we make some more stories about women? Can we actually change what's going on? I think it was ignorance and blind optimism because I wasn't really aware how few women there were because that was the world we were in. So in my first research job, which was at Yorkshire Telly, there were very few directors anyway. You had to have a a union ticket, even if you were a guy, to become a director. So it was a kind of closed shop to everybody. But of course, there were no women directors. Catherine Mooreshead, who was a very good drama director, was the first woman in Yorkshire Telly to get a ticket to make dramas. It wasn't really a big deal, if you know what I mean. We just battled on. And how did you then transition from documentary filmmaking to feature filmmaking? Was it a big change? It is a big change, but luckily when I worked in BBC Bristol, in that documentaries department, it was very, very much about filmmaking and authored filmmaking. And so the documentaries in those days weren't formatted as much as they are today and they were individual pieces of work you could be just as inventive and like different as any drama and in fact at that time drama was quite conservative and the drama departments in London were looking at documentary makers and saying oh my goodness they're doing things that are really different so they set up a scheme for documentary makers to make a transition into drama, into TV drama or film. But I think I have this conversation with Susanna White now, who's another director. Um, We look back now and think, gosh, there was a huge amount of prejudice against women directors that we didn't even notice because we were too busy blithely trying to make stuff. But when I look back on some of the incidents that you kind of take on the chin at the time you look back and then you think gosh actually that was absolute sexism or that was absolute misogyny and it's only later when you look back on it now people are much more aware of that we didn't really know that there was that much prejudice against women directors which of course there was so i i used to be a producer director of of documentaries and then I had a baby and effectively voted myself out. So I didn't work at the BBC. I, was, I worked at independent companies and was very naive about children. I thought you could sort of have one and then, you know, take it to the edit suite and crack on with your work. And then I discovered that I'm a real attachment parent. And, you know, my first child didn't sleep till she was seven. Um, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wary of asking you this because I think it's a question that we should ask the men and not the women. But what, what happened to you when you had children? I think it's an incredibly important question to ask. And one of the things I would say is that when, like 15, 20 years ago, I wasn't allowed to talk about having children, not only with men, but with other women. And it wasn't considered fair on women who didn't have children to bring the idea of being a parent into the conversation. That's ridiculous. That That is really interesting. Yeah, and there was a kind of silence about it. And I, I thought this was really, really strange. 
why weren't we allowed to talk about this massive factor in our lives which which has a massive bearing on where you are in your career and I think from having children I became at least 10 years behind my male counterparts who I'd started off with and I was very glad to to be a mother and take time away from directing and be at home and that to me was very important I wanted to do that but it was also quite painful seeing other directors zoom past me who'd been colleagues perhaps when we were all in our younger age group being equal together and that was that was quite hard because it's extremely hard to make films and be a parent at the same time for for men or women and it's something that raising films have spent a lot of time raising awareness about which for which we're very grateful i can only say that it's really difficult and I when when my daughter was little I turned down some amazing drama series and I just started making drama I made some commercials instead because they were very short and you could go away for a short time and come back and then I did make a documentary series and I took my daughter with me and a nanny and you just have to get used to organizing the care and the, and the circus, I would say, that goes with having children and see if you can incorporate them into your life. But I think it's very different now. I, the, the, I just did a drama series called The Third Day and it had quite a lot of younger men, maybe in their 40s, 30s, who had young families. And they openly spoke about having to go off to this thing to do with their children or that thing. I was thinking when I was their age, I'm a little bit older than that, I would have never dared say, I have to go to a parent's evening or I have to do this or I have to do that. It was not allowed. Men have a kind of adopted it as a right, which is, which is excellent. But also I still think if a woman says that, it doesn't have as, carry as much weight, let's say that. Philippa, this kind of leads us quite nicely into a, a series that you've directed, which is all about babies, called The Midwife. And for those who perhaps haven't seen it, it's about this Anglican nursing order in East London in the 1950s. So, you know, such a different time. And it depicts the day-to-day lives of these midwives and the local neighborhood. And I, I believe that the when you directed the first series, that's kind of set in those post-war baby boom years and I know Holly is a big fan of the series I've watched a little bit I'll put my hand up yeah I love Call the Midwife Philippa and I loved the first series read the book watched every episode and I love the um how realistic it is about birth and how it tackles such massive huge subjects and I also love spending time in those all female spaces and I wonder how that was on set and for you um, Call the Midwife was an amazing thing to have been invited to work on. I felt incredibly lucky. And this was a, a, a brilliant executive producer called Pippa Harris. And Heidi Thomas, of, obviously, is a, is a total genius. And I remember being sent this script and thinking, gosh, this is, this is so exciting to be actually invited to come to an interview even you know it was it was a big thing for me I remember sitting in the sitting room reading Heidi's script of the very first one and weeping laughing weeping and thinking to myself this is so amazing this is going to be a hit this is getting me right here you know 
So I went along to my interview and didn't get a word in edgeways because Heidi's such a chatterbox. And that's good because they gave me the job. Um, and it was an incredible trust for me as a woman director to be trusted by Pippa and Heidi to set that series up. You know, I hadn't ever, I'd done one big series, I'd done um, Five Daughters then, but this was a massive big deal. And I felt quite scared, I have to say. But again, if, if they are trusting you, you think, gosh, I've, I, I can, I've got to up my game here and do the best I can. And it was an extraordinary experience because I felt like we were doing something really new and it had been commissioned for a nine o'clock slot. It hadn't been commissioned for eight o'clock, which is where it ended up. And so we were being very brave because I come from a documentary background. I wanted it to be gritty, real, as well as being funny, you know, and, 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 and life affirming, but also to show the reality of childbirth. And when we had our first screening of the very first one, Ben Stevenson, who was the head of drama, he said, I think this is absolutely brilliant, but nobody's going to watch it. And I really hope we get about three million viewers. <laughs> so I went away from that screening, feeling thrilled that he liked it so much, which he genuinely did, and thinking, well, we've, we've done our duty. You know, we've put a feminist thing, birth, into the middle of the schedule. And then I was walking my dog and... Somebody rang after the first one went out and said, nine million people watched it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I nearly, oh God, I nearly fainted. And then the next week, it was 10 million. And then the next week, it was 11 million. And I thought, oh my God, people all over the country have been waiting for a series like this, which puts having a baby and that female experience at the centre of the schedules. Who hasn't yeah. been touched by birth, right? I mean, it is... Who hasn't been We don't talk birth. about it. Yeah. We don't talk about it. But in fact, the audience wanted that and wanted that feeling of reality, I think. Uh, and the emotional rawness of Call the Midwife, coupled with its humour and its humanity, is, is a kind of such a winning combination. And I, I feel very proud that it's lasted this long and is still going strong. So, Philippa, Holly, let's rattle through some of the questions we have from our students. Uh, we've got a lot of questions specifically about directing from uh, the kids at Screenology and Interfilm. This one is from Catherine. And Catherine asks, how closely do you have to work with the writer? Can you talk a little bit about the mechanics of working with the writer uh, when you're making a film? Writers are amazing people. If the script's no good, then your film's never going to be any good, no matter how beautifully you make it. So working very closely with the writer and then understanding what the writer's trying to get at and feeding ideas into the writer too. It's, it's a two-way process. The best collaborations are very, very exciting. And if you're working with somebody like Peter Morgan, for instance, on The Crown, who I worked with, it's, it's a very exciting thing being with him because he's incredibly inventive, incredibly sharp uh, and creative. And with Heidi or Nicole, when we did Three Girls, it's just like a super exciting collaboration if you get with the right person. It's, it's fantastic. Okay, and this question is from Catriona and she asks, uh, what do you think is lacking in terms of representation in the industry? Probably off screen and on screen. I'm reading into her question a little bit. Well, that's such a huge question, isn't it? And I hope that we're making 
fantastic strides in terms of race, gender, and all of those big important things. It, it, there's nothing more important, I think, than having diversity both in front of and behind the camera. Because, quite frankly, we 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 want to hear other people's stories, don't we? There's a lovely film that was on um, one of the Oscar nominations, Minari. I don't know if anybody... Mm. So yep. I can highly re- About the recommend... the Korean-American family who moves to yeah. the middle of Kansas, which I yes. can sort of relate to having grown up in the middle of America, but yeah. <laughs> oh, Anya, I didn't know that. Um, so that is a typical example of a film which was a small film made about this family but totally relates to all our lives, which has been brought into the mainstream by doing so well and having Oscar nominations and bringing it to a wide audience. And that, I think, is so exciting. I can't imagine why, what argument would there be for not having diversity? There just isn't one. We should talk about Three Girls now because um, it's all about representation. And I'm not sure I would have chosen to watch it because even though I sort of regard myself as fairly progressive and I care about young women, I'm thinking, well, that's not my experience. That's that's just, that's something else. But we were really blown away by how, what you just said about Minari. Here's a story in a very specific time and place, and it is universal. So let's talk about Three Girls. Uh, again, for those who may not have seen it, this was a miniseries aired on the BBC in 2017, and it won 31 awards, five BAFTAs. I mean, it's beautiful. It's the story of three girls who live in Rochdale, and they are groomed and abused by a group of men. And it's also about some of the women around them, so the sexual health worker who fights to protect them um, and is consistently ignored because these girls aren't good victims. You know, they are, quote-unquote, white trash. They don't fit our sort of conventional ideas of who should be believed and who should be helped. Um, so, yeah, talk to us a bit about that. I know Holly has specific questions, but how did how did that project come about? I think it's probably the most difficult thing that I've ever made or had the privilege of being involved in as you from the subject matter, but also one of the most rewarding to have met the real girls involved many of the real girls who didn't end up in the program as well, the people who worked with them so tirelessly to help them. was, you, you know, you don't get chances like that in your life to meet those inspiring people, like Sarah Rowbottom. Um, the health worker, you know, yeah. The health worker, yeah, a truly inspiring person and still lives in Rochelle and still doing inspiring work. So with lots of your work has been based on true lives and true stories made into dramas and especially with three girls that responsibility of of telling those people's stories I imagine is is enormous how do you cope with that responsibility and doing right by the real people it 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 is it is a huge responsibility and you just have to remember that the those people come first in the the work that we did on the scripts, every fact had to have three bases of evidence. Editorial policy at the BBC were uh, amazingly rigorous with us of checking everything. We had legally to check everything. So it was a very, an enormous body of work went into that series, which was far beyond me just as a director, you know what I mean? And, and, And all of that was super important. Philippa, can I just chip in with another question that's on that point? Yeah. Um, so this question is from Mia. 
And she asks, how do you use directing to make the story authentic? I mean, talk a little more about three girls, because, you know, you're saying you used a lot of real life material. But how do you then as a director sort of make that work, you know, yeah. on, on the screen? I think that whenever I do something, the style of how you shoot it comes out of the story or out of the script and out of the subject matter. And the way Nicole had written the script for Three Girls was very naturalistic, very free-flowing, very real. And I thought this, the, the way of capturing this is to make my camera work feel real and authentic and immersive as if you're actually there in the room. So that's what I did at the DOP and I decided that we would never have any wide shots unless strictly speaking necessary. We would only be with the girls. We would be absolutely with them, but the camera would be so close to them much of the time and be as if you were there. And that really worked. So instead of normally, like a conventionally, let's say, you might have a wide shot and then somebody comes into the room and then you cut to it. We didn't do any of that. We would start with the character at the front door and carry the camera around with them, swirling around, 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 and right up into the bedroom and carry the scene on, probably, for five minutes and then cut. And in fact, one of the girls, Ria Simitrovitz, who plays Amber, who is a superb actress, was totally freaked out by this to start with. She didn't know what the hell I was doing because instead of doing normal takes, I call them passes. So you do a pass on one character and no matter where the character was, you wouldn't know whether the camera was going to be on you or off you. And the, the pass could last for five minutes or 10 minutes, you know, she wouldn't know. And so it was a, a way of working that she wasn't used to, but she soon got used to it and found it very liberating because you, you're just immersed in it. And I think that way of doing it, instead of chopping it up into little bits, really suited three girls, suited the dynamic, suited, suited the immersive quality of the story. Let's talk about Misbehaviour. Uh, Misbehaviour is a fantastic film um, that came out in 2020, mm. just before the, the pandemic. It's a film set in 1970. It's the Miss World Beauty pageant hosted in London. And of course, a group of women's rights campaigners decides to disrupt it. So it's got this fabulous kind of international cast of fantastically beautiful uh, smart women, all with slightly different ideas of feminism about the pageant and its role in their own lives and, in, you know, in the greater arc of gender uh, relations. We, we did speak to one of the screenwriters for Misbehaviour, Gabby Chappie, about the intersectionality of the film. But I wonder if you could talk a bit about the power relationships on the set being amidst all these amazing women. What was the mood and the, the atmosphere like? The making of Misbehaviour was an absolutely joyful experience because the, the material is such good fun. It wasn't like Three Girls, which was a deadly serious topic. This was about some young women who decided to do this crazy thing of throwing flower bombs at Bob Hope and trying to get women's liberation on the map. I mean, all of those women in real life were doing many more amazing things, serious things like getting cleaners paid properly and all this stuff. But this was this event, which for good or bad, they are still remembered for. It was the first time um, a black woman came first and second, you know. So this, this conjunction of events felt like a no-brainer in terms of subject matter for a fantastic drama. And I think because the material was so positive and so fun, you know, that everybody got on brilliantly on set. 
It was a very female-centric team. We had two female producers. Nearly all of the heads of department were women. There were masses of women in the in the teams. It was a brilliant experience. And also, in terms of the contestants, who I made sure that the contestants representing their countries actually came from the countries and could speak the language. So... 80 or 90% of those women that you see are from the real country. And that was such a wonderful thing to do. And totally, you know, multi-ethnic and multinational storytelling. But that was reflected behind the scenes by, for instance, the makeup department had a lot of black makeup artists and artists from other diverse backgrounds to do those scenes, which is very rare. I, I That's the first time I'd been on a set where as many black makeup artists had been in our team. And I was incredibly proud of that. I think this year in the Oscars, the first um, team of black makeup artists won. That is brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant long and, and extraordinary, <laughs> long overdue. And, and I, that, was, that was a thrill. So I wanted to ask you about that, Philippa, because when I worked in docs, so it was in the 90s, early noughties, my crews, I think they were all men. They were all camera men and sound men. And I was an ardent feminist at the time. And if I'd seen women, I would have employed them. But I didn't proactively, I don't think, go out and find them. And neither did I proactively go out and find people of colour to work with. Because shamefully, I don't think it occurred to me then in the way that it would now and I wanted to ask you if how whether your journey mirrors that a kind of you know burgeoning feminism where you recognize all the intersections and you strive more and more to employ DOPs that are female or that they're black or that they're working class or that they don't come from Oxford you know that what's your journey on behind the scenes employment I, I, be I think like you Holly I think it's a a growing awareness that one ha that we should do that. Um, when I was making documentaries, I did actually work with a, quite a mixed team, not by choice, but because the documentary cameraman I worked with always had a woman focus puller. When I look think back now, that was a, a brilliant thing that he did that because he would bring a focus puller out of his team or sometimes he would have an AC which was who was also a woman encourage those women to then go off and be DAPs themselves and that that was quite unusual and this cameraman had daughters so I wonder if that made him different for the last few years I think the institutions who commission um, stuff have been much more on it about having a diverse mix of gender and ethnicity and I think that's so important. And it's important to remind us of that. So when we made Misbehaviour, the BFI, who's very hot on all this stuff, we had to fill in forms about to make sure we had that. And we did, we, we would have done that anyway. But I thought that was a very good thing because it's easy to forget in the melee of making a film. I think the last few dramas I've done, they've been a very mixed crews, you know, with brilliant women focus pullers, brilliant women sound people. So I've got one last question for you, Philippa. Uh, not not so much a kind of ethics and morality question, but probably just a bit more practical. This question is from Eilet. As someone who directs actors, 
do you like giving your actors influencing material or do you just give them a clean slate and kind of let them get on with it? What's your method with working with actors? I think that most actors love being directed and want those conversations about themes, references and all the things that you can give them. They're really interested to hear. And then if you've had all those conversations before you go filming, it makes the filming much easier because you've got a ready reference already. But I think chatting about the character, the time, and, and the, the, the tone of what your film is, is, is incredibly important. So Philippa, the last question that we're asking everybody is, it's a two-parter, and it is, is there any advice that you would give your younger self? And is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you'd like to shout about? Oh, gosh, that's hard about giving yourself a, a, a pep talk. I would say be braver. I think I was very timid when I was starting off. So I think be be braver at speaking out about stuff rather than feeling like you had to be in a bunker all on your own. And asking for help. I think I was very bad at asking for help. I mentor quite a few people now and I, I never had a mentor. I had my unofficial Peters. They were my mentors. But I think asking for help is a good one. And, uh, and any project that you want to shout about? Well, not at the moment, because I'm scared. That there's, there's one lovely film that I'm hoping to make, but it's not greenlit yet. So I'm keeping everything crossed, and I feel like if I say it out loud, it might leak away or not happen. Well, so I'm, I, I'm keeping everything crossed under the table here. We'll, we'll keep everything crossed as well, uh, and we wish you huge luck. Thank you so much uh, for talking to us, Philippa Lothorpe, about the world of directing and about your own journey. And we really wanted to thank our students as well for all the brilliant questions. Yeah, thank you very much, Philippa. Thank you. That's a lovely bit of advice. Um, but the other thing I really loved, Holly, you know, which is still true depressingly, is when she said, you know, you couldn't talk about having children, not just with men, but even with other women. It's almost like you're, you know, letting a giant chink in your armor. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And the fact that it's so different for men, that when men take care of children, they're, they're mm. gods. And when yeah. women take care of children, they do it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're really happy that you found our podcast. So please, please just take a second to like, just five-star rating. It's a one-tap uh, job. You can follow our podcast again. It's just a little tap. And of course, if you really like it and you think other people will benefit, do share it with people who'd be interested. Um, podcasts like ours, we have not had any money for production or advertising. And the only way that we can survive and reach other people is literally if you recommend and review it. You won't regret it. Next week, we're speaking to another brilliant woman, Una Niganali, who actually worked with Philippa on Three Girls and Misbehaviour and more recently has been working on Sir Kenneth Branagh's Agatha Christie films and Belfast. So join us then and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>